We were all in this movie that it's happening, that they're closing in on us from all around. And a couple of guys and women from the neighborhood, first thing we did this, the, in that morning is we came up here, not to the water tower because we didn't have the key yet, but we stood in that tree down there, fully prepared to see an attack from our good neighbors uh, all around us. But what I want to try to describe to the listeners is that this place is like extremely beautiful. Like we can see the sea, the, right. the beach, the like this Arubot, uh, how do you say? Yeah, the, the power... Stables for horses? No, no, the, the chimneys, the power... The chimneys, the uh, cow, the little bourgeois house. It's pastoral. It's, it's so pastoral. I, I could literally... Next time I will come here, we will do like LSD or something. Absolutely. It's like extremely beautiful. Yes. But this is a war zone. Yes, it's, 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 a, it's a place that we came to a month ago because we were fucking scared shitless out of our minds. Hi, welcome to October 7th, Emotionally Raw Coverage. From me, Amy Sapan, and Dor Comet. Dor's taking a little bit of a backseat today. We're here with Jonathan Gall. Technically not in Givat Neely, but we came up here to Givat Neely. Jonathan invited us a few episodes ago. That's true. Thank you for coming. Are you happy that we took you up on your offer? I'm very happy, yes. I'm always happy to La uh, Schwitz. My, my beautiful wife and kids and my beautiful home. Look at all the, the nice things that we have. I enjoy that to show off a little bit. I'm so happy that you played a little bit of guitar. Guess what I found out this past week about you? What? I mean, I told Dor that we should get the Cowboys here. The, on the, the, on the Arkansas, pod. Montana Cowboys that, the... that showed up uh, to what? Help the Israeli farmers? Yeah, they came to help a bunch of the Israeli farmers. And it, did you see the pictures of them when they just touched ben, down? Yeah, I think so. I thought in, in Ben-Gurion. Did you see the, the belt, belt buckle with the Jewish star? No, I didn't see that. But cow, wow. cowboys are, are the best. They are. Yeah. I, I understand that um, they are pro-Israeli. Like, I think religion-wise... If we dig a little bit, we might not love what we find in their politics and, you know, religious beliefs. Well, before we get into that, okay. I brought it up because Adore was like, oh my God, Jonathan uh -huh. and you should do the episode because you're really into country. You I am the, I am the, I'm the foremost number one Israeli uh, country music uh, radio DJ. I'm also the only country music radio DJ in Israeli radio. And you're all welcome to listen to my show, Eretz Kshucha, Rough Country, on the Audioversity, Kol Universita 106.2 FM, from Reichman University College Radio. Boom. We play country music, Nashville country, outlaw country, classic country, Taylor Swift, whatever you want. We got it. <laughs> Thank you. 
it's no coincidence that you 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 brought up uh, country music because uh, I invited you guys over to Givat Neely. Uh, I'm very connected to the country life, and Givat Neely is a moshav. Uh, it's essentially a, a farming community. Uh, the the like quick quick history uh the these places or this specific place givat nili we are in sort of north central israel not far from the coast what you guys drove up an hour and 15 minutes from tel aviv pretty much we drove through it's wine country we drove through uh vineyards and fruit orchards um givat nili was founded i think like 1950 1951 maybe 1953 you did your research uh, um my wife's uh, dad uh, was the firstborn uh, son of Givat Neely and he's going to be I think he's going to be 70 pretty soon um, and the, the population is mostly North African Jews so these are these were families uh, you could call them refugees you could call them uh, um, expats you could call them immigrants came to a young Israel um, most of them did not have background in agriculture. They came from the cities of Morocco and uh, Algeria and Libya and Turkey, some of them. And they were first uh, living in uh, Ma'abarot, like real refugee camps. And then they told them, you know that hill over there, we're calling it Givat Nili. It's going to be in, uh, a farming community. If we have volunteers, you guys, we want you to live up there and grow flowers and then maybe if the flowers don't work, maybe you'll grow uh, chickens. And maybe if the chickens don't work, maybe you'll grow uh, uh, grapes and we'll see what happens. That's the history of, of the place uh, pretty much. And I really appreciate and respect farmers as an occupation. I think it's the most noble occupation. My brother in Florida, in central Florida, is a, is a farmer. Shout out to Dan, the Fern King of uh, Central Florida. And though I am not myself a farmer, as you saw today when we hiked a little bit around the area, I very much um, respect and identify and like living in a country, uh, in a country vibe, uh, even here in our small, small country that doesn't have the, you know, the wilderness, the expanse in, in like a larger country like the US. And... <laughs> This place um, changed dramatically a month ago, as as uh, as you know, as I, I told you guys a little bit uh, when we were up there on the observation uh, tower that we sort of improvised for ourselves. Uh, the place has been fully militarized. You saw my brother-in-law with his uh, with his weapon. You saw. The, his partner at the at the coffee shop with his weapon, everybody's armed. I I got word today that I am not getting. I applied for a for a gun license. They're not giving me a gun. They say they're saying booby is not uh, is not a kravi. I'm not combat ready, but I did uh, I did volunteer for the um, uh, under the under the police for like the mishmar um, ezrachi. The National Guard. The National, sort of, the sort civil, of. civil... The civilian guard thing. And a couple of days ago, we went to uh, Mitvachim. We went to shoot some some rounds. And um, 
I hope very soon to send you guys pictures of me in full uh, uniform. Uh, we're all militarized in, in usually they can't put together like 10 volunteers. We signed up 150 people a couple of weeks ago, signed up for duty, give us guns. We want to protect uh, our space. And I'll just, I'll just finish this sort of, I'm, I'm, I'm talking a lot, but I told you earlier that uh, this week I visited with another podcast, um, the survivors, the people who were evacuated from Be'eri, a kibbutz near Gaza that was uh, brutally massacred that really got some of the worst uh, horrible things and many, many casualties and people kidnapped and, and murdered. And we went and interviewed uh, survivors over there. They're staying at a hotel uh, near the Dead Sea. And that was an, a, um, a sad and powerful experience, just pulling up to the hotel and every little kid you see, you know that this kid was, a few weeks ago, was hiding with gunfire all around him. This little kid probably lost a family member or lost friends. And now they're at a hotel, like they're having fun together, but they have nothing. Their houses were burned. So they're all wearing clothes that were donated and they're playing ping pong on a donated uh, ping pong table, you know? Um, and when I talked to these people, I couldn't help. I'm always thinking like, this is a place exactly like our little place, you know? It's the, pretty much the same size, pretty much the same people, same vibe, uh, the same kind of um, uh, gate that, that we're not really guarding, same kind of like anxiety, should be wor worried, is something horrible going to happen? We talked to this lady and she said she was never really worried about rockets and such. And the only difference is that the worst possible thing imaginable happened to them, hasn't happened to us, thankfully. But we've spent the last month getting ready for the day that it might happen to us. Do you want to ask a question or should I keep, keep going on my, my monologue? <laughs> um, we, were, we were on a water tower before. Was that a water tower that was turned into an observation tower? Yeah, pretty much. So... Yeah, Saturday morning, October 7th. I, I remember I was coming back with well, just walking the dogs who you met. And they not, uh, my wife says, there's a, there's a crazy war happening. <laughs> and we, the, the Shaul, my son, you haven't met yet. He's a teenager. He was sleeping with his friends in the, um, on the backyard. And she wakes him up. She says, uh, there's a war. And he says, <laughs> Like, mom. Why, what, what the fuck are you talking about? She said, no, 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 seriously, there's a war. Get inside. And that was like 8, I don't know, 8, 8.30 in the morning. And we, we Im immediately, me and a couple of other guys from the street, we went up to that water tower area because we really thought maybe this thing is going to escalate and we're going to get attacks from all sides. And we set up like an a observation point over there looking at our neighbors, at Israeli citizens, Arab uh, towns, places that, you know, in the day-to-day -day we're, we're peaceful and friendly with. It, we have business there. We have friends there. We work with these people. We 
it's our, I, I, I think I told you this before, this is our, our doctors and our lawyers and our pharmacists and, and everything. But for a moment there, we were convinced that they're going to come in and cut our throats and murder us and rape our women and kidnap our kids. Like it was a real possibility and a real feeling. And we're a month and what, six weeks in pretty much. Many of us still feel that way. Like if you look at the, the WhatsApp group of, I mean, the security team of the, of the Moshav, some of them are still convinced that we need to arm ourselves and get ready for battle. Others are a little bit more calm and confident. Um, but that's, that's the, the weird reality that we're all in. Like we, we are living in this kind of combat ready situation for the past uh, six weeks. And I thought I'd ask you guys to come over and experience that. But I think we actually had a nice lunch and a nice cup of coffee and had a lot of pastoralia and not a lot of uh, fear and anxiety. Did you feel any fear and anxiety here? Today was the first time that I left Tel Aviv since this all started. I've been admittedly too nervous to get in my car and drive somewhere alone. I'm scared like what if what if there's an air raid siren, right? Like, and then what if I get so freaked out that I accidentally get into an accident? Or what if I pull over to the side of the road and then, you know, obviously like you just like get down on the floor on your stomach and you put your hands behind your head and then you just like, you know, pray that everything will be fine. And what if the car breaks down and I'm on the way somewhere or, you know, so I've been staying in Tel Aviv door, door the first week, like went down, you know, three and a half hours in the car. We, we still didn't know what was going on. He went to Keshet's funeral. You, you feel safe in the city though? I mean, in the city, at least, you know, if there's an air raid siren, I know I can just like get into a building, you know, or like if I'm outside, I'll just like run into a building or something. But if you're driving between cities, you're outside. It's, it's ridiculous. You know, it's like, I'm trying, I'm a little bit of a scaredy cat. You know, I, I think there's many different ways of being courageous. Some people are physically courageous. Some people are intellectually courageous. Some mm -hmm. people are like blabbermouth courageous. Maybe I fall into that category. You know what I mean? Like right now, my niece and nephew are down there. Combat soldiers. Really? Yeah. Oh, so it's like know. something I try to not think about every day. Cause if I think about it, I'm like completely messed up. Yep. And there are people like, you know, the other day when there was that, there were missiles launched from Lebanon into the North. One of the guys that died was someone who worked for the electricity company. Like he was out on the street yep. fixing a, a power line that had fallen because of the skirmishes. Right. So, you know, I reflect on this at least once a day about how, you know, I'm able to kind of like minimize how much of the war I feel in like my day to day while lots of people are, are out there like, you know, on the front lines, literally in the war zone, collecting, like doing insane stuff. And I, gratitude doesn't even begin to, it's, it's like just a word. Like it's this insane amount of gratitude that I feel for all these essential workers that are, and soldiers and reservists and volunteers that are doing just <laughs> unimaginable like, and, and then, you know, you see the videos on social media with the soldiers where they're like doing like, um, 
you know how like November is like mustache month? Yeah, a lot of mustaches. Lots of mustaches and like funny viral videos. And I'm like, oh, these are these amazing soldiers that are like on the front lines or in there or whatever. And they're like- They're goofy they're, college kids. They're like goofing off and they're they're keeping their morale going. So it keeps me going as well because it's like, Amy, you're not, <laughs> you're not in there. Like just, just chill for a second. Like if they can keep it chipper, you can also keep it chipper. And it's- it's just, I, I, it's hard to explain. I get it. And we were up there on the, I love being in the country. I love nature. I love flowers. I love earth. It was amazing to see the cows today. Yep. I really loved seeing them and, and the skies were just gorgeous because there was We that- can eat them later on if you want. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry to our vegetarian listeners. You're going to edit that out, right, Tor? So, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, we had that big rainstorm where- the other day and so the the sky is so crisp now yeah you know we have those winter sunsets are back because we're on the west coast so it's like this beautiful (laughs) it is a west coast you know know. so it's like it was so beautiful that sunset that we just saw from the river to the sea so gorgeous and the 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 light just hitting us it's it's almost surreal how much beauty i we saw today and just like being outside and not in, you know, our normal South Tel Aviv sort of um, kind of, what's a good word? To, Cla- claustrophobia? I don't feel claustrophobia. as much. It's cute. Shapira's cute, but it's also, you know, it's not like an expansive sky next yeah. to you. And it, it doesn't have that like fresh breath of air. It, and it does feel, I'm happy that we spoke a bit about country music because there is something about country music that there's a lot of resilience in that music. If I, if I, I mean, you're the expert here, but maybe I wanted to talk to you about like news and lots of the stuff going on, but, but do you, it's, it's, it's better to talk about country music. Is there, is there something like a takeaway or a song that comes to mind that might be uplifting or some sort of, I don't know. I don't know. I've I've been having a tough time enjoying anything. I, I I wonder if there what kind of music I've been listening to. I haven't been listening to a lot of country music. You know what? Except that we went to the Taylor Swift um uh, concert movie with my my daughter who you met. Uh which was a nice bit of escapism. 3 hours almost in a movie theater. With a bunch of twelve-year-olds, she's she's t- she's going to be ten, and they gave her uh, uh, one of those friendship bracelets. Oh, the Swifty bracelet. The Swifty bracelet, and she went up and she danced with the like thirteen-year-olds up in the in the higher rows, and um, so Taylor's not very country music. She does a couple of the older songs in the middle over there, but that's the closest I got to to enjoying a- any kind of uh, music recently. I don't know, man. I, I, uh, I, I don't have a better answer. I want to talk, although this is tricky and prickly and dangerous, uh, about the, the meaning of the place and the history of the place. You, you sort of, you were a little bit ambivalent before when we spoke off the mic. How can we talk about, you know, all these big historical things? People are talking about, you know, 1948. John Oliver is talking about the Nakba and so on. It's, it's, 
it's it's insane that every, that people are talking about this like that th- this is an issue our you know basic uh, legitimacy of this country but people are talking about it and givat nili the place where we spent the last few hours is an interesting example of that okay because you came to me and you said i don't know if we can talk about it because you want to say what you saw in a little bit of research you you read or or should i tell it uh, honestly if you could i'll tell it to. i'll tell it in my in my perspective okay as i said agricultural uh, farming community founded 1953 My, my, my uh, wife was born here. Her father was born here. Her grandparents were the f- some of the founders of the place. I joined them a little bit more than 10 years ago. We moved from the city with our kids, with, with one kid here to, to Givat Nili. And um, it's just a normal place, right? It's a small town. Uh, If you want to go historically, it's not a settlement. It's not a Hitnachlut. We're not in the West Bank. We're not in uh, occupied territory. We're in territory that is legitimately Israel by any account, any map that Bjork wants to post from any year. This is Israel. It's not Palestine. It never was Palestine. It'll, it can never be Palestine. It's Israel. 100% Israel. But a few years ago, After we lived here for a while, I started noticing that when I go on Google Maps in English, I can't see my town. It doesn't say Givat Nili. It says Umal Shuf. I've never heard of Umal Shuf. I don't know what that is. And then I start uh, researching a little bit and I see that there's quite a lot of like online activism from, um, you know, um, pro-Palestinian people. Um, organizations, activists from post-Zionist uh, uh, historical researchers and so on. Um, and they've created a, quite an impressive narrative about there was this village here called Umal Shuf and you guys, the Zionists, came in here and murdered everybody and took over our land. And now you have this colonial settlement here called Givat Nili. I don't know. I don't know. I, I wasn't here in 1948. I don't know what really happened or didn't happen. Uh, as you guys saw from the observation tower, yes, you can see remnants of farming and civilization all around. There's, I can't tell from which era they're from. I don't know if they're hundreds of years old or a few decades old. Uh, every stone in Israel has a history with several civilizations. Everywhere we go, we find Romans and Crusaders and Greeks and, uh, and uh, all kinds of different empires that came through here, Persians and Babylonians and, and who knows what. Uh, this place also has history. These stones also have history. And what I can tell you is that it's a recent... The, the, build, the activism around it and the, um, the building of the narrative is recent. It's not like the day after the Nakba, the day after the War of Independence. It's not like in 1948 this began. It's not like in 1953 when our village was founded this began. No, this is an internet era 
uh, wave. You know, they're based on, um, on work by historians that have been doing the work in recent decades. The data that they're collecting and the, um, the work that they're doing online is very, very recent. It's all part of a very clear uh, path. And a, a few months ago, yeah, a few months ago, I saw Saturday morning, by the way, same thing, Saturday morning, a bus arrived outside our house, the house you visited. And there was a bus and then there was like a Jeep with a bunch of folding chairs and a group of Arab uh, kids stepped off the bus in our street, which is okay. It's very unusual, but it didn't make me nervous in any way. And they were there, as far as I can tell, in, for some kind of history lesson with their uh, teachers or guides. They had hats on. They all had the same hat and it was some kind of I don't know, heritage uh, movement or something. And there was an older gentleman with like a megaphone and a piece of paper. And he sort of showed them the area. And everybody was really nice. I stepped up to them. I shook hands with the people. I, they said, are we making noise? I said, no, it's okay. I, I asked them what they're saying. Yeah, history. We're talking about history a little bit. So I imagine that they brought the kids here and telling them, Guys, this is ours. This is Umal Shuf. This is your homeland that was taken from you. And one day we'll kick these crusaders out. We'll kick these colonialists out. And again, this will be ours. Maybe I'm paranoid, but I, I'm pretty sure that the version of this is what was uh, said that day. And that's, uh, that's problematic for me. Okay. And it's problematic on many levels. We can't solve the whole thing here. We don't know everything. We can't know everything. We can't tell all the stories. But this is a little bit of peak of a peek into the story that I got. I made, I'll end with this. I, I made um, a really interesting podcast with a, with a school um, principal from Kfar Kara, the, the uh, Arab village that's closest to us. Uh, and she had a lot of problems with crime and violence among young people in her village. And she put her head together and she worked with her team. She's a really, really charismatic and, and cool lady. And she understood that the young people in her village have an identity problem. They, they're not connected. They don't know who they are. And of course, part of this must come from the fact that they have been, they're Arab Muslims living in a Jewish Israeli they're Arab speakers in a Hebrew-speaking country. I can understand why they have a tough time with identity. What are they? Their, their biggest hero in Kfar Kara is a soccer player, Muhammad Abu Fani, who plays for the Israeli national team. Last night, he played against Switzerland. He was amazing. I love him like, like my son. But he plays for Israel with the Star of David uh, on his chest. Who are we? Like, I can understand why they have an identity problem. And she said that she solves the problem of crime and violence by getting the kids connected to the earth and connected to their historical identity and connected to the region, which is a good thing, right? We want them to have an identity and we want them to not be violent and criminal. But maybe the, the, the identity that she talks about connecting them is a nationalistic identity, is the same identity that will get them to one day, you know, get a gun and come and kill these colonists, these white uh, colonialists uh, and, and crusaders. So it, I don't know. I don't know. 
how we're going to live together. But, um, but this is the situation. Situationship. Ooh. A few things come to mind. One thing that comes to mind is, so who makes history, right? And right now we're seeing a lot of people, like it's this concept of, is it, is it the loudest voices in the room that get to decide? Is it the majority that gets to decide? Because the majority, once upon a time, really believed the earth was flat. You know, Galileo got killed for being like a, or excommunicator or whatever. We keep going back to this thing where we're, we're like, we've advanced so much. We have these like l- rule of laws in place to protect the minority from like the majority of these like mobs and mob violence and, you know, to, to be able to, I'm like the outcast. Okay. So I've always like identified with those stories from history. And now we're like, oh no, but 90% of the internet thinks that like Israel's the bad guy. So that must make it true. And I'm like, well, that's, that's wild. Like, did we, you know, I was listening to a podcast this week where they said, um, you know, you like set off on a journey your whole life, but you like to end up where you started kind of like, you think you're going to, you know, kind of overcome everything. And then you're going to be this other kind of person. But at the end of the day, you like end up kind of back where you were. And I was thinking about in the context of like the past few thousand years of human history, like we had the dark ages and we had the bubonic plague and we had like these witch trials, quote unquote, where they were like burning women at the stake. Have we evolved that much? You know what I mean? Like we, we set up these systems that are there to protect, you know, visionary thinkers and thought and thought that breaks and defies like societal convention. But now we're like, oh no, it's a popularity contest. Like it's math. It's math, which is, which is weird. But another thing that comes that I've been thinking about, especially this morning was like how, how easily history could have gone another way. Like we look at it now we're like, oh yeah, of course. Like it's so boring and cringe. Like the world war two story where like the allies won, but like they didn't just like win, you know, like people died. Lots of troops died on all the sides and it could have easily ended in another way. Like what if the allied forces hadn't won? And like that whole idea that we have that like Nazis just disappeared. Did they? I mean, they found Mein Kampf at a school in the strip this week. That wasn't just like a bl- like a copy that hadn't been read. It was like the spine's broken, you know, it's highlighted. There's post-its, like people are studying this. It's not like it's disappeared, you know? And I think about the history of this place, for instance, and I think about like the history of the, the city I was born in too, New York City, mm-hmm. which... It's not like there was nothing there until a bunch of people showed up in the 1600s. There were people living there. Manhattan right. looked completely different than it looks now. Obviously, the buildings, blah, 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 and the street signs. But topographically, Manhattan was a different animal. Manhattan had these rolling hills that at one point were flattened. Downtown Manhattan didn't even exist. It's like they like filled it up. It's. It, can you imagine people talking about 9-11. I guess it is happening. The past two days, they're saying that like Osama bin Laden's letter from 20 something years ago is like a viral hit on TikTok amongst Gen Zers now because he's like talking about how American imperialism like brought this on itself. 
Mm-hmm. And so that's trending now. But can you like imagine if the whole conversation that like the rest of the world was telling America with 9-11 is like, oh, you guys like, you know, the World Trade Center, like it's sitting on Manhattan or, or like Manhattan, yeah, which but, was the name of Manhattan, like in the. And there is a little bit of that, isn't it? Like It's if, kind if of happening now, woke. but it wasn't happening back then. I cannot remember. Like I was really. I think that's what I'm going to dig into this weekend. I want to like look at YouTube, like what what was on news media the you know from september 12th until the end of september like what were people talking no, about it wasn't i don't the, i don't think that they had anything like this like again and again i keep asking myself would piers morgan or any of these shows if they were like around in 1941 1942 1943 would they have invited like himmler onto the show to just be like hey, okay, great. Like, what do you think about what's going on? And like, they'd put him against like someone else on the other side and then they'd have a debate and then Piers would be like, thanks so much for coming in, Himmler. Thanks so much. We'll see Goebbels tomorrow night. And then Adolf can't be joining us. He's joining us by like a telecaster from his bunker. Is there a limit on a certain level? And like, at what point? Could something have easily gone the other way? Like you look at the Brooklyn Bridge and you're just like, oh my God, it was always there. But the stories of how these things came to be, they could have easily gone the other way. Like it's hard to explain this concept, but... Can I try and paraphrase you? Yeah, please. I think think what you're trying to say is is expose the um, hypocrisy of the super, super white guilt privileged uh, Western super woke people and their claim uh, against us that we are white colonialists and therefore the, the bad guys in the story. And you're, you're trying to say, uh, in, in a way, this is so ridiculous because everything in your world, you guys are colonialists, uh, worse than us, everything you, you live, it's like, right? I think, I'm, I mean, it's there definitely, but, you know, as much as I, I can't, <laughs> I don't like hypocrisy. I mean, we're all like hypocrites, right? Like I can care about human rights, but I have an iPhone. Hmm. And like, I guess there's this, there's really this question about like, as a society, when we're talking about stuff, like there, there's kind of a ground rules. There's like a social contract, right? So like John Oliver, we didn't talk about this in episode 23, but I was talking about it with a friend last night. And he was like, you know what's so problematic there is he's like, okay, on the one hand, you have Hamas. And it's not okay that people keep saying that they were elected because they were elected like almost 20 years ago. There haven't been elections since. Give the Gazans a break. Almost 80% of them don't like Hamas. Mm. On the other side, we have Bibi Netanyahu. Give the Israeli people a break. They don't really like Bibi. They've had a lot of elections. And then I guess his point is like, none of these governments, like on the one hand, this like dictatorship. On the other hand, like, you know, this democracy that had five elections in what, like two yeah, years? shaky, unstable. None of them are really, who cares? And, and it's this kind of like, let's put them on the same register. Like this is the same. When you oversimplify things on that level or when you like try to take two things that aren't the same and mm-hmm. you conveniently kind of like frame them in this package, like, yeah. you know, people still watch documentaries on Netflix and then they're like, oh my God, I saw the documentary and it's like the truth. But I understand it. I know. I know it. But yeah. like they're post-truthers, but then they'll bring quotes or something from a documentary and they're like, that's fine. But then it's like, oh God, I wish they were teaching like critical media studies, like in every high school and middle school, like everything is framed. And if I frame something so simplistically that I'm giving it like an answer or good versus evil, you know what? 
I run. Like if someone's giving me that, that I, I, I don't trust it, but most people do. And that's like a huge, huge issue. That's part of the, the lack of the, the lack of media literacy here, I guess. Yeah. I, I think I'm sorry to cut you off, but the, I think the main thing is that you and I are in it and John Oliver and his audience have the benefit of looking at it from far away and being uninvolved. So it's, it's, we're never going to convince them that we, we can never have the same experience. We are in it. We are 100% committed to a side and we are living in the trauma of the actual uh, war and they are observing it from the outside. I, it makes me ang- angry, as very, very angry, but I, I don't expect much more. I would agree with, I mean, yes, okay, all that's there, but... Then there's also this other dimension of this conflict, which is the insane protests that are happening that, you know, that like a guy got murdered at one of the protests in LA, like at four o'clock in the afternoon, someone just like hits him upside the head with a megaphone. He dies the next day, Paul Kessler. Yeah. What, what, and, how did that end, by the way? Did they? I, I don't could, know if they found the person. I saw the coverage. No, I, th- I thought they had a person in custody, but they were debating whether it's homicide or maybe it's an accident because he fell backwards. Remember, it was like he fell back. He wasn't killed by being struck. Be, I mean, I, I'm with you. I just want let's follow up on that story. Well, I we should. Know. But I mean, there is this bigger like yesterday. Um, I saw the statement made by, I guess, the chancellor of MIT okay. about what's going on on campus. Mm. And she was talking about how. I love how your face gets when you start talking about these people. I'm just trying Continue. to be really, I'm just trying to be really calm about this. So, like if I could take her, her eight minute, nine minute, like statement and just like reduce it to something. She's basically saying the most important thing is that we want to protect speech. So we want to protect everyone's right to speech. We're going to get involved. You cannot interrupt class. You cannot go into someone's lab, get in the way of them working. At the end of the day, this is MIT. We mm-hmm. have important stuff to do, mm-hmm. but but we're going to make room for all of the speech because the speech is protected. Okay. And some groups might think it's hate speech, but other groups don't think it's hate Can speech. Can I have a Klan rally? Can I have a Nazi rally? I'm, you know, it's like sometimes you look, you you just Can barely say, know someone and then that person just reads your mind. That's exactly where I was no, going. I want to know. It's a question. Exactly. How about, what was the, how about like uh, derogatory racial terms? So the, I'm happy you brought this up because a lot of, okay, I started digging around a few weeks ago on like the hate speech stuff in America. And there's this one case called from Skokie, Illinois and Skokie, Illinois, this round of stuff week one or two, there was one of these like anti-Israel protests. Okay. It's, it's a suburb of Chicago. Okay. Back in the day, a lot of Holocaust survivors used to live there. Mm. And there was a, a case that made it to the Supreme court in the 1970s, I guess, because a bunch of neo-Nazis wanted to have a parade in Skokie, Illinois. Yeah. They wanted to walk around. This Illinois is like, Nazis. This is like 30 years after World War II yeah. ends. So if you can imagine, there's survivors of all ages in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, whatever, living in Skokie, Illinois. And they sue against this. They were like, we want to do an injunction. We want to stop. The American Nazi neo-Nazi. party. And guess who represents the neo-Nazis? The ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union. For, for because of freedom of speech. They represent the Nazis in that case. Now, the case is regarded by people that don't get into the nitty gritty as a case that basically says 
you have the right to run around with neo-Nazi flags. In Germany, you don't. Right. In Germany, it's 100% no, no go, no on the Nazi flags, no on anything that's... But in America, it's a little bit different. So I started, I was like, is that really what that ruling says? It doesn't. It doesn't say that. It It's one of those court cases where it came down to the procedural aspects of the case. Mm. And it's really about that the city couldn't, in, you know, impose an injunction mm -hmm. against the neo-Nazis the mm. way that it did. So they were able to proceed because it just fell on procedure. And in the end, they didn't even have it in Skokie. They did it somewhere else. Take me back to MIT. So MIT, she's like, she's saying all this stuff like, oh, it's free speech and oh, it's this. And, and as long as you're not interrupting classrooms and we're going to roll out some like anti-Semitism training and we're also going to roll out Islamophobia training, yeah. you know, Listen to the Sam Harris Brightline episode from last week, and he talks about where Islamophobia as a concept came from. Pretty interesting. He also reveals some stats from post 9-11. He says five times more attacks were done on Jews than, than Muslims. But bring it back to here. I really I, I stopped watching it. And I was like, if there were KKK student groups running around campus, yeah. people that were like, we want to really connect with the Confederacy. I like, identify, I identify as, as, as my great grandfathers. My I'm their, I'm the great grandson. It's a rich heritage. It's a rich heritage in the South. Yeah. You know, Alabama stuff. I want to have Confederate flags on campus. I want to start, you know, wearing, I want it. My great grandfather was a Klansman. I want to wear his, clan uniform and i want to bring back kkk stuff on mit's campus do you think that they'd be like yeah that's chill free speech all the way do you think that that would happen because i don't let's see today is thursday november 16th it's almost six o'clock in the evening Thank you, Shema, Jonathan Gall, Dor Comet, Maya Schlesinger, I'm Amy Sapan. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. Stay tuned. Islands in the stream, that is what we are. No one in between, I can weave your arm. Stand away with me to another world. Love.